and welcome to Tea or Books, episode 111, I should say, of Tea or Books. This is why I'm never allowed to introduce. <laughs> I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And um, yeah, today we're going to be starting off talking about, do we um, care about what people look like in books or not? Yes or no? That was a bit clumsily worded. <laughs> um, again, this is why Simon never lets me do anything, and for good reason. Um, <laughs> You're doing a beautiful job. Thank you very much. The second part, we're going to be discussing two novels by Molly Keane, also known as MJ Farrell in her um, earlier novels, she published as that, um, which are Full House and Good Behaviour. So Simon, um, it's December, Advent has started, how are you? It is, tis the season. Um, I have my tea Advent calendar. Uh, I Tea bags behind the each door a different tea bag and i'm not looking at what they are and i'm trying to guess what they are i'm writing down my guesses and on christmas eve i'll find out how accurate are you just smelling them no i'm drinking them as well oh right. Wow. um but i'm just not looking at the label oh okay so, oh, what do you mean so i'm just a bit struggling here to imagine a tea bag fitting in the little cavity how does that work um i guess it's just quite quite a deep calendar maybe oh. They're quite big, big holes. Each one actually comes with a um, thing to make the world better and instruction as well. So what? today was have a have a sleep in, which I'm not sure is, you know, going to improve the world enormously, but um, yeah, I think it, it builds its way up. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if anyone would like to watch me guess these each morning, you can do that at my Instagram at Simon David Thomas. So there's, there's something enticing. Um, who makes this calendar? Because I'm intrigued now. This particular one is from T2. Oh, I love um, T2. Yeah, me too. Uh, they did, I had a different one last year, and I can't remember who made that, but there were a few of them around, and there's, you know, you can get ones that are just fruit teas or ones that are just yeah, decaf and all these sorts of things. literally Googling this as we speak. <laughs> I'm the size of it, so now I can visualise. I'm, I'm in the room. And so far, I think I've had peach on day one, uh, lemon and ginger on day two, and English breakfast today. So I'll find out how accurate that was later we're actually talking about tea and tea or books for once about to say that and I was like I'm going to further this discussion because I'm I'm going to ask you a question now is there a tea bag that you would dread coming across in this calendar that you wouldn't want to drink well something I discovered last year is that I really don't like green tea and I I already suspected I didn't like green tea but it was confirmed by the three or four different green teas that I tried over the course of the of advent. So I mean I'm sure there will be green tea in there but I don't really want to have it. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. I'm not a huge fan of green tea either to be honest. I sometimes it's too it, I get I find it's got a really strong aftertaste. Yeah, it just it reminds me of sort of just like hay cut, like grass cuttings. Mm. <laughs> so I'm not enjoying this. Not yeah. I mean, if I'm going to have yeah. like a healthy tea, I'd go for a white tea, but they're very expensive. Um, yes, but it's getting me in the Christmassy mood, and today was at a Christmas market, as as mentioned to you just before we started the yeah. call. So I've got my scented orange candle. I've got a Christmas wreath that I've put on my gate because I didn't know how to put it to the on the door. And that's adorable. Uh, and I'm got some. I've already been playing Mariah, so I'm I'm Christmas. ready. Well, I mean, um, I'm loving this Christmas enthusiasm. <laughs> I love Christmas. I just do. Uh, and um, I hear that you have been dragging a Christmas tree up your stairs. Yeah. So every year I go to the local market to get my Christmas tree. I only do a reel. I like to have the scent of the actual Christmas tree. Um, and it's a good 10 minute walk back from the market. And I have bought a six foot Christmas tree. So it was <laughs> Um, but I did it and I did it in one this year I didn't need to stop at any point along the journey which I'm like every year I get stronger at carrying this Christmas tree and yes I do live up four flights of stairs and there is no lift so I also had to carry it up four flights of stairs and actually Simon you've witnessed this because you were here when my piano was delivered I was there for I was there for about two hours or something and the entire time they were taking the piano up the stairs it, it was not a fast job for them because it's oh, it yeah. was awful I felt so bad and also the water was switched up so I couldn't even offer them a drink <laughs> I never felt so bad in my life um but yes yeah, so that's what I've been doing today I did I this morning I bought myself a very small mini Christmas tree from Waitrose that came with little lights and I put it on top of my piano and I thought that's me done I'm just going to do that this year and then I was looking at it this afternoon and I thought this is miserable. 
I can't I need to go get an actual proper Christmas tree. So I, I went and, and got myself one. And I've got myself some Ferrero Rocher that I'm ready to put in my Christmas sweet bowl that will go on the Ottoman, which will just mean I will constantly be grazing on Ferrero <laughs> Rocher between now and Christmas. Quite um, right. And I've also got my Christmas spice scent diffuser going. So my my flat smells like Christmas. So I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm in the mood. I'm not really a Christmassy person. I know you are massively. Mm. Christmas, I, I always just find stressful um, and a bit of a, you know, anti-climax really. But I'm trying to get into the mood this year. Well, you're doing a good job, it sounds. And yeah. um, for those who, if this is anyone's first episode, we do talk about books, I promise. <laughs> so, so, what are you, what are you reading at the moment, Rachel? Oh, good question. So, as um, listeners may already know, if you listen to the previous episode, I've recently started working at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre here in London, mm-hmm. um, and so I am now frantically brushing up on my knowledge of Shakespeare, which is scanty at best, I will admit. <laughs> um, so I've been reading actually a really interesting book. So it was published about 10 years ago in conjunction with an, an exhibition that was on at the British Library at the time, which I didn't see. And I don't know why, but I feel like it was the Olympic year. So I was probably just too excited. Uh, okay. Um, so it's called Shakespeare's Restless World by Neil McGregor, who is was potentially, I don't think he still is, the director of the British Museum. And he's published several books all along the same lines, which is where he uses uh, consecutive chapters and each chapter focuses on a specific object. And then he talks about what that object tells us about the specific topic that he's discussing. So um, this book is all about what a series of objects t- from the British Museum mostly tell us about Shakespeare's world and then what that tells us um, about elements of his plays like how it can sort of unlock meaning for us so it's absolutely fascinating I'm just having a great time that sounds wonderful when I worked at the Bodleian I somehow so I worked in the rare books um team for a while and I somehow got in a project which was commissioned by an American film company who'd made a dvd of some Shakespeare adaptations but they wanted some information in the booklet about particular again it was objects or portraits of Shakespeare and all these sorts of things from across time most of which uh, ended up me writing about how these someone would claim a portrait was of Shakespeare and actually it turns out it wasn't it was, they just found a portrait and be like could have been Shakespeare <laughs> all those sorts of things and I also had to write a short biography of him very short like you know a thousand words or something Ooh. and I wrote my first draft of it and I sent it off to them and it came back with a comment that I was not swooning enough <laughs> they wanted it to be more swooning so I rewrote it as though I were writing the blurb for Mills and Boone you know I, I used the term shotgun marriage at one point <laughs> and they were happy with that version <laughs> well Simon thanks <laughs> um, I've just listened to an audiobook actually about Shakespeare by James Shapiro, who's done quite a few, but this one is called Shakespeare in a Divided America. Yeah. And look, it's really interesting. Looks at different, I guess, pivotal moments in American history and how they relate to certain Shakespeare plays. Uh, for example, the shooting of Abraham Lincoln and the different plays that John Wilkes Booth was involved in, um, or how I, uh, I believe. Uh, Monica Lewinsky put an anonymous note quoting, was it Romeo and Juliet? Something like that uh, in a newspaper. Uh, And various things across history where people have um, sort of called on Shakespeare or or quoted him in connection with these big events. It was very well researched. And I wouldn't have thought that Shakespeare was even tangentially involved with many of the things he mentions. But um, yeah, fascinating. And I think he wrote Contested Will all about... uh, the suggestions for other people who wrote Shakespeare, which is one of the best books I've ever read about literary history. I really, really loved it. And uh, yeah, he's, I think he's got such a great, he's such a good researcher. He's also great at making things entertaining and really seeing uh, the real impact of, of uh, literature on history. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's surprising how a topic that you might think is just must be exhausted by now. They can, there's constant new research and new yeah. On it, that's really interesting. So, I mean, I'd never really called myself much of a, a fan of Shakespeare, which I shouldn't say. Because um, <laughs> is your employer listening? <laughs> uh, um, but no, I mean, increasingly, I um, even just having been there for a few weeks, I've developed much more of a um, sort of interest from hearing what people are talking about. You know, it's, it's come alive to me in a way that it hadn't before. Um, all of his plays and him as a person mm. and all of the different debates and, and ways of viewing Shakespeare's plays in a contemporary world. So 
um, because the Globe is doing a lot of work around Shakespeare and race and Shakespeare and gender and it's really um, interesting perspectives on um, you know how how Shakespeare can kind of speak to our contemporary existence so yeah I'm really um, intrigued um, to find out more so I've, I've also recently discovered which is terrible my library my local library <laughs> Um, and I went in there the other week and just to poke around and they've got had loads of books on Shakespeare. So I basically cleared out the shelf on Shakespeare um, because, you know, as people listening in England will know, we are in a cost of living crisis. So I'm trying to spend a bit less money on books um, and make more use of the library. So I've, I've got those from there. And I'm also halfway through Hamnet, which I got from the library. Mm-hmm. But Maggie O'Farrell. Maggie O'Farrell? Maggie O'Farrell? Maggie O'Farrell. Maggie O'Farrell. Yeah. Um, yeah, I read that. It's really good. Well, I mean, I read read the first chapter in the bath and I just thought, I, I can't, I know where this is going and I don't know if I can cope with it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough read at times, for sure. You know, my nephew is the same age as Hamlet in this book and I just think I know what's going to happen and I, I don't think emotionally I'm going to be able to handle this. Um, okay. I might, I, I want to press on, so I, I will. So that's me. What about you? What are you reading? Have we already talked about it? We haven't talked about well, it. Well, just mention the James Shapiro, but I've also just finished uh, The Benefactress by Elizabeth von Arnhem. Um, not one of her more read ones. Oh, but, uh, yeah, it's well, I'll tell you the plot and tell me what it reminds you of. Uh, so it's written in 1901. It's about a, a young woman, I think she's 25, called Anna, who inherits from an uncle this house in Germany. She lives in England, but she's got German relatives uh, and speaks German. And she decides that she's going to go there and use the, the sort of small fortune, it is relatively small fortune she's inherited, to um, invite poor but genteel women to come and live with her. Uh, and she starts off with four different uh, women, no, sorry, three other women who come and move into this house with her, all of whom are quite grumpy and uh, infighting and gossipy, apart from her, and as sort of paragon of virtue. Uh, and they, over the course of a period living together, their lives are transformed. Remind you of anything that she published later? I was going to say, it sounds like a precursor to the Enchanted April, does it it's not? It's weirdly similar. Um, it's, I mean, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and there's, you know, the classic romance angle. There's various male relatives who turn up and prove to be awful. Um, but it did feel a bit like an early draft of the Enchanted April. That I, I can't remember exactly when that was published, but maybe 20, 30 years afterwards. So she... She obviously thought that was a good idea and didn't do that well. So I'm going to move the setting to Italy and give it another go. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm glad she did. But oh, it's such um, a thing to ask you about this. So um, I noticed that you put on Twitter the other day, there was that really lovely article from Spectator, I believe, about, I think it was 10 novels that um, mm, mm. And I noticed that there was a Elizabeth von Arnim on there. And it, you seem to suggest that it might be becoming a, British Library classic? Yeah, well, the introduction to Sally was mentioned, and it is very early days and certainly not been approved, but I'm hopeful that it will eventually be a British Library title. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, not not only my say by any means, but I certainly would, would like it to be. And it's interesting, actually, because most of her novels have been republished in some shape or form, but that one hasn't, and I'm interested as to why that might be, so... Yeah, there's a handful of her later ones that haven't been, um, and her earlier ones. It's sort of that middle period that they've they've snapped them all up. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Introduction to Sally is quite. Um, it's sort of like a Greek myth, I guess, but, but set in a real place. It's what happens if this unbelievably beautiful woman were to exist, sort of goddess level beauty, and what and actually how that would be quite annoying for her. Mm-hmm. So, so, uh, it's, I mean, it's very funny. She's always very funny. Well, I say that. I've never read Vera, but I got I get the impression that one's not very funny. It's not. It's infuriating, but it's very well written. Yeah. Just been a new vintage edition of it, actually, with a lovely cover. Yeah. Um, before we move on to the main topic, I just want to mention, those of us who Spotify will have got our Spotify unwrapped this year, showing the songs we listen to most. And if you uh, are a podcaster, on Spotify, then you also get a podcast version. And indeed, some people might share the podcast they've listened to most. And Rachel, you'll have seen. Steph, uh, I'll just give a, give a thank you to listening to 14,000 hours of Teal Books last year, oh, which uh, I looked up and I, I think that was the right number. But it was I looked up and she must have listened to every episode at least twice last year. So thank you, Steph. I hope we've, we're yeah. sort of putting you to sleep or something, or maybe it's going all night. I don't know. I'm very uh-huh. impressed by that. I mean, normally the only people who have to listen to me are people who are paid to do so. So, <laughs> delighted. 
flattered. I mean, Rachel's not listened to any of the episodes. You know, I <laughs> but you know what? I'm like Maggie Smith. She never watches her own work. I that is that is a one way in which you are like Maggie Smith. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh dear. Have <laughs> a dull moment between us two. <laughs> well, thank you, Steph. It was very sweet of you to mention that to us, and um, thank you to everyone who listened to us last year. Spotify yeah. gave me all sorts of stats that I can't remember, but but more people are listening to us on Spotify than ever before. So thank well, you. Well, that's very much. lovely. Yeah, we really appreciate that. And um, yes, Rachel, our, our topic is, uh, as you say, do we care what characters look like? We're not going to talk about clothes because we did an episode about clothes a, a little while ago, but other mm-hmm. things. Uh, what are, when, you, when, when this was suggested, were there any characters' appearance who was really stuck out to you? You thought, I think of them and I think of, the, of this particular, you know, uh, visual characteristic. Do you know, uh, what, the first thing that, that struck me really was thinking about authors who are very visual in their descriptions and authors who aren't very visual in their descriptions. And I think for me, probably the most visual writer of, of character is always Charles Dickens. Mm. Um, and I know there are several characters from Dickens novels that I, even though I'm not a big Dickens fan and haven't really reread many of them, um, that still sort of stick out for me. And a character who I always found really vivid and slightly disturbing was the character of Jenny Wren in Our Mutual Friend, um, who is a little girl who is quite, you know, now we would say quite offensively described. Um, she's She's got physical disabilities. Um, and the description of her as being, so she's a child, but she's got the face of like an old woman and it's, Mm. and she's her body's deformed and everything else and I always had this very strong image as I was reading it of this sort of strange preternatural creature in the corner and it's uh, I find many of his characters like that I can really see them in my head and he uses their appearance as a sort of metaphor for their um, personality or as a sort of representation of of something in society Um, and I find that interesting and converse to that, my favourite author, Jane Austen, really does not describe mm. the physical appearance of her characters at all. And I've always found that really interesting that she's kind of left them, she either le- purposely left them as a blank canvas for the reader to create their own image, or she just didn't care. And I, I both of those are quite interesting, I think. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, as has come up time and again on on the podcast, I don't have a very visual imagination. And I remember... Um, I'd, I'd sent a draft of a novel off to a friend who, to read, and he fed, you know, said some nice things. But fed back after the, after the reading the first chapter, you've not described anyone's appearance, and I thought, oh, no, I haven't because it just doesn't cross my mind <laughs> what people look like in, in when I'm reading. And if people are described, um, particularly in, in a fairly uh, innocuous or not particularly indistinct way, then I just sort of jettison it from my mind instantly. So the yeah, the things that I thought of for this were where it really is. Not integral to the character, but things like Poirot's moustache, you know, you're not going to forget that's there no. because it's quite unusual and it's described a lot. And it's actually in the books not particularly like the one that David Suchet has. It's a bit fuller than that, I think, if I'm remembering remembering correctly. Um, and often in children's books, there will be a lot of talk about the appearance first. I think about Hermione Granger in Harry Potter books. You think of her cloud of hair. Yeah. Um, bushy hair um, I was thinking it's a bit hard to think about with books that have illustrations but I always remember the twits in Roald Dahl's book and that yeah. the, what the sort of disgusting mess that they are with you know bits of food in their beard and things is very um, significant in their character but it is hard isn't it with I mean the people I've mentioned either have illustrations or adaptations and it is harder to separate when you've read a book and then when you've seen that person on screen to to have that original idea in your mind I guess yeah and I think that's um that's a real struggle for for like classic novels I think because you do tend to come to those with the picture in your mind already and I think you know I was um before uh, you and I at the same age so you'd be the, have the same experience we read Harry Potter before the films came out mm-hmm. so I already had a very distinct image in my mind of those characters but I can't go back to that now uh, it, I will always see them as being those those child actors but um Something that I notice that annoys me a lot, particularly in um, fiction of the, sort of the 1920s and 30s, 
And often Victorian as well is, I was, I was getting annoyed about this in Full House, um, which we'll discuss later on in this episode, is that so many of the female characters are just this sort of stereotypical ethereal beauty with, mm-hmm. um, you know, perfect heart-shaped faces and glossy hair and um, and their beauty is is their sort of only redeeming feature or the only thing that's important about them and I find that quite frustrating that sort of lazy writing of just oh in order for this character this female character to be interesting she's she's got to be beautiful and for the characters we don't care about they're very plain and they wear glasses and they might have spots (laughs) (laughs) and it's I I think in the contemporary novels you find that less and less but certainly novels of, of that of the early 20th century and the 19th century, it just seems to be a perfectly acceptable convention that shorthand for you, you should like this character, we'll make them beautiful. Um, you shouldn't like this character, we'll make them ugly. Um, and when I say ugly, I mean, you know, those quite stereotypical, oh, they've got greasy hair or... Yeah. Um, I mean, interestingly enough, I think one of the most physically described characters in Jane Austen is Mary, the sister Mary Bennett in Pride and Prejudice, and she's the mm. ugliest because she's yeah. got... Her, her rimmed glasses and everything else and um yeah so I'm quite intrigued by that as a as a concept because you don't often get the same descriptions of men in the same binary way in fact something I do find um difficult whenever men are described as handsome particularly in Edwardian novels or early 20th century is it often mentions what their moustache is like and it's like well you've sort of ruined the picture if we're just like so handsome with their bushy moustache it's like well I'm sure they I'm sure they uh, were very attractive at that time but I can't I can't picture a, a you know handsome hero with a, a moustache sorry if anyone's listening who does has a moustache but um but you're right I mean the uh I guess you still get the sort of the the Maybe some of them are greasy hair and glasses, sort of, sort of Mr. Collins esque types, but um, but it is certainly not as much the shorthand for this is a good, nice character. Um, let's make them have peaches and cream complexion. Always comes up, and I think I don't really know what that means. Are we, is it blended peaches and creams? Are they sort of mottled white and orange? I don't know what. And if and if sorry, you go. No, I was going to say, it is a bizarre expression. I'm just trying to imagine that now. I'm, yeah. they, is it supposed to be sort of like, I don't know, the kind of the, the texture of a peach skin? Maybe. <laughs> What's the cream doing? Because yeah. oh, I wondered if it was sort of, you know, the white face with the sort of slightly rosier cheeks. I don't know. But... But then, is that not an English rose? I don't know. Well, yeah. Mm. I mean, only yesterday I had peach crumble. I didn't look at it and think, gosh, what a beauty. <laughs> um <laughs> Um, yeah, I want, and a sort of exception, I, I can't remember if I mentioned it recently, is Mrs. Bradley in the Gladys Mitchell novels that um, I read Speedy Death recently, but she's she's described as looking like a, a hawk or something, and, she, and a lot much is made of the fact that she's not conventionally attractive, um, and that, you know, people are more or less repulsed by her, it seems, and it is, uh, yeah, I mean, I think Gladys Mitchell probably quite enjoyed making this very unconventional woman, uh, not fit in with what women were expected to do in order to be accepted in the, the you know, high society that, that that Mrs. Bradley is moving around in. And of course, as again, I think I mentioned in a previous episode, when Diana Rigg played her in the TV adaptation, it did sort of lose that idea. But uh, yeah, her appearance is, particularly in that book, very made much of um, in a way that uh, someone like Miss Marple, we know that she's old, but I think that's, we don't get, much detail if i can if i'm recording correctly about the specifics other than you know white haired and old yeah i think um it's quite interesting actually because i think mystery novels are quite quite good at being very descriptive in their characters like you've already mentioned poirot and miss marple is also very um physically described um, you know, I can sort of see her her white hair and again her glasses. I know we're not talking about what people are wearing, but you know what I mean. She's quite wiry as well in her in her shape and that wiriness and sort of steeliness about her um, behind that, that belies this sort of soft exterior of being this kind of fluffy white haired old lady. Um, and I'm thinking of Dorothy L. Sayers as well. She's the description of um, Peter Lord Peter Whimsey. I know. Have you read? You have read. Um, we, we've had we've had feuds about them. Yes. In fact, we did. Whose body? I think on the podcast. Yeah, you, you know, you really don't like him, but um, he's again. He's he's 
appearance he's he's quite dashing but he's not kind of really handsome so he's what makes him stand out is his clothes not necessarily his face so that's also interesting that he chooses to to present himself being very eccentric through his clothing um perhaps because he's quite nondescript looking otherwise um but i think there's for me it's I, I like, I mean, I'm quite a visual person and I like to imagine exactly what characters look like. And I do think it's interesting sometimes how sometimes we gain an impression of a character that when you actually go back into the text, it doesn't actually tell you that the character does look like that at all. Yeah, because I think often, I mean, sometimes they'll talk about the colour and length of hair or that sort of thing, but more often it's, you know, they looked dig- dignified or they looked refined or they looked common or you know whatever these words where you can then superimpose your own vision like um, not Agatha Christie uh, Richmond Crompton always gives her heroes um, an air of breeding and that's basically the <laughs> only <laughs> uh, thing to define their appearance uh, and even things like so I'm talking about attractive if it says they look attractive they, they're not itemizing everything on their face unless it's quite inferior romance novel might talk about their button nose and their wide eyes and all these sorts of things but more often it, it's uh words leave us to do do the interpretation from our own experience or our own tastes I guess yeah and I think it's it's really difficult to to not bring your own perspective or your own um, connotations to characters and I think when characters are used their physical description is described with adjectives you automatically go to to connecting you know, someone's described as being matronly um matronly bosom is used quite a lot yes <laughs> and or if someone's described as being um you know looking like a grandmother or somebody's described as as having sort of distinguished nose or something you automatically go to somebody in your head who you know has that attribute and so it's quite difficult even when a character has been you know really described in detail to to even kind of get an impression of what that what the author might have seen in their own head i don't know if um if character descriptions even if someone is incredibly descriptive you can't guarantee obviously that that people are going to get the same idea and that's where illustrations come in and i think novels have generally moved on from i think it's jane Eyre, isn't it who sits in front of the mirror and draws herself and describes herself and i think probably most novelists have moved on from the idea that they give you a full description of someone's appearance early in the novel yeah. uh, i think that's looked on as quite a you know old-fashioned trove and these things might come out or if someone if it's a narrator might describe somebody else or something but if it's in the third person they're unlikely to say you know john entered and with his long nose and his big eyes and his Um, (laughs) the most confusing description of uh anything physical that i ever read um was in sweet valley high uh, I may have mentioned this before. It was only confusing to me because they talked about the characters' bangs. And at that point, I had never come across the word bangs, and I was very confused. For our, for our American listeners, that was known as a fringe in the UK, uh, and I was really trying to work out what why what explosions could, could she have around her house? What could this possibly around her face rather? What could this possibly mean? <laughs> <laughs> I remember first coming across that. And I think I was at the hairdressers or something in New York, and she said, "Oh, do you want bangs?" And I was like, "Huh?" <laughs> Doing little fireworks in the background while saying, "No, do I?" Um, <laughs> and, um, worked it out what it meant, but yeah, it comes from something like bang and bangle horse or something. It's, it's, it comes from the, the, what a horse's tail looks like, or a horse's mane, or something. Probably mane it. rather than tail, but uh, yeah, it's an interesting etymology. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think, as I said, children's books and maybe young adult books probably focus more on appearance. Um, I wonder why that is. Is that true? Is that just something I'm imagining? I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, it's a hard and fast thing, but I think, you know, children's books are innately, I think, more more descriptive and more visual because they're also teaching children that vocabulary to be able to create the world for themselves and I think as well children have got less experience of of the world and less uh, opportunity to to see a broad range of people necessarily so those um those descriptors are needed to help them create a picture in their mind but it's interesting as well that obviously many children's books are illustrated so where do those impressions come from do the children get the impressions from the words or do they get it from the pictures you can't really tell can you Mm, that's a good point. 
no, you're never looking at one than the other. But I mean, I can't say that it ever really bothers me, um, you know, about what a character, I don't mind what a character looks like. It doesn't affect my relationship with them. But I, I do like to get a sense, I do like to have some sense of, of what they're like. I like to be kind of given an impression. Um, and that helps me to build my own impression. I don't really like it when I'm just given some adjectives. Yeah, it's interesting because I think you're saying you don't mind, um, and I agree with you, but uh, I think it is, in Victorian literature and later, there's quite an offensive shorthand, isn't there, between, not just about unattractive, but, uh, but, yeah, different facial characteristics or even, you know, going into phrenology I guess head shapes and things yes. uh, were thought to reveal certain things and some of that can be quite racist some of it mm-hmm. um offensive for other reasons and so maybe that's why novels have moved away from that now certainly we would never now have somebody has this particular facial uh feature or disfigurement or something and therefore that tells you something about their character that we yeah. rightly thought as, as being very offensive now yeah absolutely and, and I think that's something that can be quite challenging in novels um certainly i would say up until probably the 1960s or 70s you know you will find often descriptions of jewish noses for example Mm -hmm. and things like that and that therefore being a negative trait in somebody which which can be hard to read and puts me off i mean there are certain novelists that that are um you know really repeat offenders on that front um who i kind of avoid a bit now but um, the it's it's interesting how certainly that kind of nineteenth century belief that somebody's features belied their personality um, or the state of their soul or whatever, mm. um, and I think we've kind of lost that now. And I wonder whether those descriptions would have said well, they must have said more and meant more to a nineteenth century or early twentieth century audience to a reader reading those books now. You know, we can't make those connections. Oh, you know, he's got a bumpy head or he's got a really large forehead. You know, a Victorian person might have been like, oh, yeah, well, that's yeah, yeah. But, you know, we don't have that interest in phrenology. Well, I don't think not many people have an interest in phrenology. And, it's, and I mean, that's where we get highbrow and lowbrow from, isn't it? Well, yes, yeah. yeah. So it's it's interesting, isn't it? And I, th- I do think, I do wonder rather, um, people reading those things at the time, if they had this set of beliefs and prejudices that were about the literary world or if they also seeped into how they actually saw people because I can can see it being maybe just a set of tropes that they think oh that person looks like that and that's shorthand for certain traits within this novel but they wouldn't think that if they saw someone in the street I don't know no well what you would hope so wouldn't you but um it's yeah I don't know it's intriguing um so do you care what characters look like Rachel I mean, I don't care for the purposes of the story, but I I do think it's important for me anyway to have uh, some visual clues as to who who I'm dealing with. But I'm more interested in their personality than their appearance. Yeah, and I don't really care. I don't. I often don't notice if it's not there. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, side note: I came across. I don't, can't remember. I just stumbled across a, re- a review that somebody or a comment that somebody put about a. Uh, about teal books and it was very nice a com- compliment i can't remember the details but they did say at the end of it they do seem to be running out of ideas though <laughs> and this comment was from two years ago <laughs> so... <laughs> oh well we're going please um, <laughs> blood from a stone <laughs> who needs fresh ideas well, please, <laughs> so if anyone's got any ideas please oh, do please teal books at gmail.com yeah repeating them i mean what might be quite interesting is going back to stuff we've done right at the beginning and seeing whether our opinions have changed simon okay there's a threat so we all do that unless we, <laughs> unless we <laughs> 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 um we do have a question for the middle section um so from gina that was who did that lovely voice note oh, yeah. uh, recently it was actually uh, around the same time but i, I saved it until we uh, had a gap which was um n- novels with the best domestic details what would you recommend so descriptions of things around the house and all that sort of thing gosh um oh have you got something that comes to mind yeah well i actually um thought of virginia Woolf at first which is maybe not the necessarily uh the she's not a domestic novelist in the way that some more middlebrow writers are but the as we as we know as you know that um this preoccupation with describing the domestic was a big thing for the modernist and for 
more middle rare writers at the same time, even whilst each thought the other one was doing something very different. And they wrote, I guess, those things in different ways. But they became they did in that in the nineteen twenties thirties become a much there was a much um, greater interest in describing the minutiae of the everyday, and that could either be in stream of consciousness or in decide, in thinking actually maybe a novel that is just about uh, a housewife walking around her house is just as important as a novel about war or whatever. Um, but yeah, Virginia Woolf does it really brilliantly in her short stories and in her novels. And uh, yeah, you may well have read her, Gina, but uh, I think she's one to look at again with that particular thing in mind. Yeah, I would say you're right. I mean, one of the the scenes that stands out for me most, actually, in in literature, is the the dinner into the lighthouse, mm-hmm. the the beurre in its big pot. Um, I a piece of sort of kind of a, another moment, a domestic moment that really stands out for me, and that I always refer back to when it it comes to be autumn, is Mrs. Miniver by Jan mm-hmm. Down. Um, and it's the, did I just make up the name of her? I think Jan I did. Strather. Yeah, Strather. Yeah. Why am I thinking Danvers? I don't know why I thought that. Yes. <laughs> Jan Strather, I was like, I'm just going to just throw that name out there and hope for the best. Um, she really writes well about the domestic interior and also the sort of rituals of the day in the home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really, um, she's got a wonderful description of, of the kind of, in sort of October time, maybe early November, when the light goes quite early in the afternoon here in Britain and um, the delight of the lamps being on and tea being laid and, and that kind of Richard of having your tea and um, watching the light fade outside, which I th- always think is really beautiful. So if you haven't read that, I'd really recommend that. Um, I'm just thinking if there's anyone else who strings to mind as being really good at domestic detail. Um, Elizabeth Taylor, I'd also put forward. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, um, things like at Mrs. Liffincott's um, or Review of the Harbour. I think, uh, re- and probably any of her books, yeah, she really zeroes in on those um, little details as well. And I think, you know, Dorothy Whipple is a wonderful writer about the domestic environment and the, um, she's very good at describing the home and all of her novels pretty much are set in the home apart from um, High Wages, which is set in a shop. But um yeah, it's that I also love the descriptions in her books of, of kind of contemporary furnishings and things. You really get a sense of like what people's houses look like in the 30s and 40s. Um, so if you're interested in that, I would recommend her. Lovely. Yeah. Um, right, on to those two books by Molly Keane slash MJ Farrell. Mm. Um, do you mind if I introduce Full House? No, that's fine. And I can do good behaviour, just... And I'll just look at the names of these in it. <laughs> Great. So Full House is the earlier of the two. I think it's from the 30s. Yes. Um, it's in this Irish mansion called Silveroo, which is run by Lady Olivia Bird, great name, uh, who is this very selfish, very controlling, but, um, but quite effusive woman who has three children, or two adults and one um, bit younger. Uh, and the and the side of the novel, John, the eldest son, is going to come back. He's been away with mysterious, uh, I guess, tragedy slash illness that is is at first not quite revealed, but we let we soon learn to be some sort of mental breakdown, which uh, Olivia Bird, Lady Olivia Bird, is not not keen to tell other people about. Um, and it's about, I guess, the different domestic uh, contretemps and things that are happening in this household. Olivia has a quite strange relationship with her husband julian he's um he obviously thinks she's a bit ridiculous a sort of mr bennett mrs bennett thing going on but also would never step in to stop her being ridiculous Uh, and there is obviously there's more affection there than in the bennett's probably um the middle the middle siblings a daughter called sheena has this love affair going on the young youngest son marky has his own issues and it's it's basically a big family drama i guess but set in in this um, anglo-irish mention away from the realities of, of everyday life for most people living in Ireland at that time yeah um good behavior is similar I mean all of Molly Keane's novels are set in Anglo-Irish big houses um but good behavior was actually written I believe in the 80s it was one of her, her mm-hmm. I think it was her last book or one of her last books um and is quite a similar setup in that you've got a relationship 
between um, a mother and a child, but unlike her earlier novels, Good Behaviour is narrated the first person, and the first person narrator is Arun St. Charles. Um, and we start at the end of the story in terms of uh, at the moment when her mother dies and um, she basically kills her, um, which isn't a spoiler because it happens in the first couple of pages. And then we go back in time to look at their relationship from when Arun was a child and to understand why she she did what she did. But as we find out, um, as the novel progresses, we understand that Arun is quite an unreliable narrator. But she, um, this story of, of this, um, again, quite similar, very beautiful mother um, who's very selfish, parents who are wrapped up in each other. And there's also a son um, who's very much the kind of golden child and Arun feels very dismissed she's she's a big girl that's quite a good description uh there mm. yeah, so you know she's big she's ungainly she's not pretty like her mother she's not a real lady etc and that's looking at how that resentment that builds up over a childhood of of a bit feeling like you are you know unimportant you're not beautiful you're not clever you're un, you're you're unloved and and what that does to a person um is really what the the narrative thread of the book is thank you um so you'd read one of these four is that right was it both so i'd read full house many years ago um and i reread it for this um and i remember really enjoying it at the time and i read it alongside the rising tide which is another one of her early novels which i remember absolutely nothing about but i suspect it's probably set in a large anglo-irish country <laughs> um and it's interesting actually rereading full house after i just read good behavior because you do see a huge difference in molly Keane's writing style over that kind of several decades really um, between the two books but it's interesting that she's returning to the same topic but she's tackling it in a very different way and I think it's really interesting that this much later novel goes in with that first person viewpoint yeah that is an interesting point because as you say I read these I hadn't read either of these before and I read them more or less back to back uh, and it was quite hard for me to distinguish between the two plots because they are so similar in, in some ways it, um, but uh well, even the tone is quite similar, but uh, but there is that play of ignorance and knowledge in good behaviour with the first person because Arun is very blind to a lot of things that are going on, not mm-hmm. least the fact that the man she's in love with is probably having sex, well, is having sex with her brother. Yeah. So um, I that's a spoiler, but it's quite mm-hmm. early on. And, and I don't think it, it's not really... Um, I think the issue is more about seeing her ignorance there than about the plot itself because you're seeing how she is capable of missing something that's right in front of her, uh, partly guided by the good behaviour that's expected of society. She not only adheres to it, and it's all about appearances, uh, but she also expects that everyone else will. So she doesn't really um, imagine that people would be disregarding societal norms and expectations, I guess. Um, Yeah, she has no concept of of a world where people might be duplicitous or not be as they as they seem and there's a sort of real tragedy in this household of of it being a world where nobody ever really says what they mean or what they want to say or how they really feel and growing up in an environment like that you can understand how Arun becomes so incapable of understanding what she's really understanding and being able to interpret what she's experiencing and what she's seeing around her um, and her sort of coming to conclusions and um, beliefs that are obvious to anyone else ridiculous to her feel true because she's got no, no reason to to believe that this kind of um, she's got no reason to believe that that they wouldn't be because she's so used to people behaving in odd ways Yes, it's a very eccentric family, isn't it? Very eccentric family. Um, And very, you know, there's it's amusing, but there's also, I think this to me felt like a much sadder book than Full House. Mm. Um, And it's interesting that we've got that bit, as you say, at the beginning when she's in her 50s and her mother dies um and she yeah she doesn't smother or anything but her actions do lead to her mother's death and we see her quite 
dispassionate and in in control and quite powerful I guess Mm. and then to go back to a thing where she's really powerless uh, but you've always got in mind that that scene that is you know you know is coming at the end of the chronology even if if it's the beginning of the book but um, that's always layered behind you you seeing her as this quite sort of dappy youth I guess. Mm. And I think it's um, there's that really interesting relationship between her and, and the servant Rose who's been with them forever and is there at the end and who, you know, says to Arun, you know, you, you've killed your mother. And again, that very obvious, again, this is probably a bit of a spoiler, but again, it's obvious when you're reading it, that Rose has been sleeping with her father for many years. They've been having, you know, quite an intense... Um, Arun's father, I should say, not Rose's father. Yes, sorry. Yes, yeah, but Arun's yeah. father. Um, and it's, it's very obvious to everyone. And it's also very obvious that her mother knows. And yes, yeah. That Rose's sort of fierce attachment to her mother is is perhaps some form of guilt or um, you know, wanting to make atonement somehow. And Arun just can't see that at all. And her blindness to it is is infuriating, but but also tells you so much about her. And I think what's really sad is that she's developed this kind of belief system that she is pure and that she is uh brilliant and she um she's deserving of, of so much better than all those other things. She becomes very judgmental of other people um, because that's what she's brought up to be like. And that precludes her from, from leading the life that she really wants. You know, she ends up, she'd love to be married. She'd love to have children. And she ends up alone because she's unable to form those meaningful relationships with other people because she can't read people. And I do often see it described as a dark comedy, but I agree with you that I think there are, you know, comic moments but it does feel to me overall quite a melancholy book mm. um with maybe maybe ironic moments rather than rather than comic moments there's or just things that are so ridiculous that you have to laugh at them but it, she's not laughing at them they are having a real impact on on her life yeah i mean i found it you know a tragedy really as i was reading it so this is this is somebody whose life is you know is built on on lies um and lies to herself that she, but she doesn't even recognize that and it's it's all just um you know I just I thought gosh it's it's really sad and actually I was quite interested I would have liked to see after her mother had died I wanted to see mm-hmm. what would happen to her afterwards and would she sort of disintegrate into this you know mad Miss Havisham-esque woman in a house um, <laughs> you know would it be the making of her would it would it change her perception of the world or, you know, would Rose tell us some home truths? I don't know. And yeah, Full House definitely isn't a uh, immature novel in comparison. I thought it, uh, she, there are, there are bits of it like Sheena's relationship that are quite romantic and histrionic in some ways, but I thought the, one of the central triangles between Olivia and Julian and their friend Eliza was so interestingly done. Mm. So Eliza is this, this family friend who quite clearly is in love with Julian um, I believe she turned him down. Is that right? At some point, um, he turned her down. Is that what it is? Yeah, I forget the. Yeah, but they're still technically friends of both of them. Clearly, is more of a meeting of minds with Julian. But there's this dynamic where he will give so much, but he is never going to choose Eliza over his wife. Uh, not just romantically, but if it comes down to a big squabble or something, he will. He even if he's been gently mocking his wife all day, he will choose her. Uh, and that's something that Eliza is, you know, she's having to be really careful with how much she says, how, even when they're both gossiping about about the ridiculousness of what's going on. She can't say too much because her place in, in the household, even as a visitor, is is insecure. Yeah. Uh, and she's, I mean, another, in some ways, a bit like Arun in that she's this, the older Arun, that she's a single woman who has not found... Um, security i guess everyone has some sort, sort of more security than eliza does but eliza is is uh she values that household but is very much on the peripheries of it yeah and i think she's a really intriguing character because she as the only person outside the family who comes into the house she has the power to to be a, a kind of confidant to the children so there's um Sheena and John who are the adult children and that relationship with John develops into something it perhaps shouldn't um and 
Sheena sort of can confide in her in a way that she can't confide in in her own mother because they don't have you know this fascinating exploration of of mother and children relationships and Olivia's suffocating um, relationship with them that's so self- that's so modern as well the the yeah. sort of teenage daughter who finds her mother infuriating um, yeah. but yeah and I so- love I love how they both of them call her Olivia they don't call her mother or mum like that but Eliza's position is is being this kind of pivot around what that everything works and everyone comes to her I think I can't remember the exact wording but it was really interesting how like everybody comes to her and sort of expects her to to be a kind of sounding board or a sponge for their emotions but she's left with nothing at the end of it and Mm -hmm. I I thought that depiction was really poignant and I think Olivia's the portrait of Olivia is fascinating as well because she is selfish, but um, and very over the top, but so nuanced. And um, yeah, I, I felt quite sympathetic to her because she was so clearly disliked by her children, who probably love her but don't like her, uh, and not respected by her husband, even though again he loves her. Um, and so she has power in some spheres that she wants. She can hold these, you know, big garden parties. The garden party scene was wonderful. I loved yeah. loved all of that. She has this big sort of rivalry with someone else who's having a garden party on the same day uh, and she's furious about it. Uh, and she has her position in society. Um, and I think a bit like Arun, she's a younger Arun. She is blind to some of the things that people are saying about her, but she's not completely blind. She is... Uh, she recognises, I think, that she is um, tolerated by people around her. Yeah, I think, she, you know, she she does know that she's difficult. Um, and I think she's also aware that she, she she does have that awareness that her children don't like her. Um, and, you know, there's a moments where she kind of lets her guard down and she admits things to Eliza. Um, but she's also not really capable of doing anything to change herself. So you've no, got people no. who are stuck in their ways. Um, and I thought it, it it was a really fascinating exploration of family relationships and of how, um, I suppose, a woman who doesn't have very much in her life. And I, I thought that, you know, that was really interesting as well to just to think about these women like Olivia, whose only job, is to run a house that doesn't really need much running that runs itself mm-hmm. and to do flowers and whatever um and so and if your children don't need you anymore and your husband doesn't need you then what do you do and so her life just becomes full of petty gossip and um obsession with her own youth and again really interesting portrayal from that time period of someone who's obsessed with dieting who's obsessed with um face creams obsessed with ways uh, diet to keep herself young who's mm-hmm. read all the latest stuff you know we think of this as being a contemporary preoccupation but it was clearly very important even then you know she's in her 40s and and yet she's described as looking like aggressively young um which is a wonderful description <laughs> um, <laughs> speaking Sorry, um, and that jealousy between her and her daughter, where she sees in her daughter what she wants to still be. Yeah, absolutely, and that is very much simmering under the surface. And and when we think of, in fact, the physical appearance thing, one of the most um, memorable I've ever read actually is in this with the governess and her beard. Yes, yes. Um, it's, we're never quite told quite how full this beard is, but it's her. It's her shame. She thinks about it all the time, and it's um, there's a very actually really moving scene where she's got this sort of hair removal cream mm. through the post, uh, and um, I think she describes something like she puts on an amount that would only be needed by a particularly hirsute Italian or something like that, but uh, and it doesn't work, and it causes blistering, and the hair is still there, and that could have just been played by for laughs, but that scene, which is it's not in the first person, but is basically from that governess's perspective, is so heartbreaking because it's the main preoccupation of her life, uh, basically, that and loving little Marky, but yeah, she thinks she thinks people are thinking about it constantly, and you know some of them are thinking about it quite a lot whenever they see her. Uh, and yeah. I thought it was a really moving scene about the sort of hopelessness of not being able to deal with something that is the biggest, um, your biggest nemesis, I guess. Yeah, I think this the real strength of, of Full House is its depiction of those um, characters who are on the outside. So Eliza as the outsider and then 
um, the governess is the outsider. And I found that scene absolutely heartbreaking. I could hardly bear to read it, actually. And also at the end when, you know, she's, she has this experience with the, um, I don't know who, what he is. He just works on the estate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she she is just longing for something to make her feel like she's she's part of life and she sort of thinks that she's fallen in love and it's just, I'm just like, oh my goodness, I just... I just couldn't cope. I was just so overcome with pity for her. And it was really difficult to read, actually. Um, mm-hmm. And again, we think of those sorts of de- depictions of, of governesses as being a sort of 19th century thing. But um, it's quite interesting to read that in a 1930s novel. And as well to think about how, you know, that sort of profession was coming to an end at that time. And Olivia is always mentioning, oh, I'm thinking about getting a Swiss, I'm getting a Swiss girl. I'm thinking about doing this. And so mm-hmm. her profession is always insecure and, and unstable just like Eliza's is um and I think perhaps as an in the novel I don't think that um Molly Keane draws the parallels between them as strongly as she could do um but those those characters I found incredibly memorable perhaps more so than the others but what I didn't enjoy was the absolute histrionics of the relationship between Sheena who's yeah. <laughs> And the ridiculous reason why they can't get married. Yes. Oh, yeah. So they're worried about um, hereditary insanity, basically, aren't they? Not bonkers. And what made me laugh? So they're worried they they don't want to get married because of hereditary insanity and because they don't want to have a child. But she's like, I'll have sex with you, but I won't marry you. I'm like, darling, you do know what happens. (laughs) The marital vows won't preclude. Yes. Yeah, like you doing that isn't going to stop you from having a child who may have hereditary insanity. None of this makes sense. Um, yes. I was screaming at them internally. <laughs> and I think, I mean, I don't know how pressing a cons- maybe people were thinking about hereditary insanity all the time now because, I mean, people don't really talk about that now, do they? Um, might be yeah. other things you'd worry about inheriting, but that wouldn't be one of them. Um, and I thought that those that story did mark it out as being the novel of a younger writer and it's sort of thing that it was the sort of thing that definitely wouldn't have been put like that into uh good behavior or if it was there it would be about how ridiculous they were whereas in a full house i don't think we were meant to think they're ridiculous i think we were meant not every character would have had that concern but i don't think we were meant to to think the concern and the whole idea was absurd yeah we were sort of meant to buy into the drama of it rather than laugh at them Yes. And, you know, there's lots of this sort of, you know, running, running through the ground at night with, you know, in your nightdress and (laughs) the moors and whatever. I was like, for goodness sake. (laughs) He's the only man, any, you know, man around your age you've ever met. Maybe (laughs) branch out of it. I don't know. Seriously. Um, And then, you know, it's just, yeah, that bit for me, I was like, I could have done without that element of the story. Everything else I loved um and I thought was was really strong writing but you can see how in good behavior she becomes a much tighter writer and I'd my first one I read by her was um Young Entry which I think is her second novel and I've been put off for quite a while because that novel is basically entirely about hunting um and there's you know her novels do have a lot about hunting in although less and less as she wrote more I think uh I can't one of these novels is it Full House that's got a hunting scene I forget one of them's got a lot of that and I just I mean I'm not interested don't, no. just want to skip past it I don't I mean I don't think Full House does but I mean I've only read Full House and Rising Tide so I and Good Behaviour now so yes not... forget one, one of these novels had a bit of hunting and I can remember it thinking oh it's here again but um, oh, maybe, I think it's Good Behaviour that has a bit of maybe hunting maybe it's that okay yeah but yeah so I mean Young Entry it possibly is a hunting term I don't know but it was basically entirely about hunting um and the only other, yeah, the only other one I've read is Two Days in Aragon, which I did really like, and that got me back into thinking I'd read more of hers. Oh, I must, um, I, I would like to explore more of the old backlist, but um, yeah, I hope that the histrionics aren't there in all of them. <laughs> um, well, now comes the T.O. Books decision-making time. Are you going to choose Good Behaviour or Full House? Well, you know, it's a bit tricky, really, because I, mean, I had expected to like Good Behaviour more than I did because, um, you know, Hilary Mantle gave it such a glowing review and I was like, well, 
But I think actually for, for a book that stayed with me more strongly, I would have to say Full House. Yeah, I was expecting it to be a much more immature novel. And I actually thought the wit and the insight were so good in it. Um, and such detail and specificity that, uh, yeah, I also preferred Full House. I, did, I liked both. I thought Full House was absolutely brilliant. Well, there we are. There we yeah. go. Um, us. Um, yeah. And in the next episode, we will be doing two novels about sisters. Both yeah. Handley were sisters in the title. They Were Sisters by Dorothy Whipple and Three Sisters by May Sinclair. Yeah. We'll see I'm you then. See you then, Han. And we will do, will we do an episode before Christmas? We probably will, won't we? Um, what, it depends. Depends how long it takes us to read those big books. But if not, uh, have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, everyone. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.